Hey, before we started this week's podcast, I just wanted to give everybody a quick heads up. Uh, Coach Tipton was on a cell phone and he was driving. You'll hear us reference it early in the podcast. Uh, he was driving from Snow Valley Basketball Camp in northeastern Iowa towards St. Louis. And there, there's going to be a few times as you're listening to, to this week's pod where it might be uh, cutting in and out a little bit for a second or two. Uh, but just work your way through it. The information's way, way too good. Uh, you're really going to enjoy this podcast, but I did want to give you a heads up uh, before you started listening in case the audio sound a little bit different than what it normally does. So that's the that's the precursor to, to episode number 79 here. Brett Tipton, uh, the Guam national coach, assistant coach, and the under-16 coach there at Guam, does a terrific job. You're going to have a lot of really, really good information to take from this. So enjoy our conversation. Good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a Pen and a Napkin podcast. Welcome to interview episode number 79. I don't know, trying to change up the tone and the tenor of the numbers here. Really excited. Our first international guest. He's an American citizen. He lives in American territory. But if you don't know anything about Guam, you're about to find out. A territory that was annexed by the United States as a result of the Spanish-American War of 1898. In case you didn't know already, folks, yes, I do teach history as a full-time job. Brent Tipton, uh, coach with the Guam National Team, is our guest here today. Uh, he's on the road. Where are you at right now with the, uh, on the road with the family right now, coach? Where, you, where, where are you approximately at? Well, first, I'm really impressed with your your knowledge of Guam history and <laughs> the Spanish and American War. That's impressive, and you're right on target with that. But we're currently somewhere in between Waverly, Iowa, and St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I just got done with the first session of the Snow Valley camps um, with Don Showalter, and my voice is a little hoarse, if you can't tell. Um, so, but we're somewhere on a road uh, in between Waverly and St. Louis. Well, we'll use our CIA tracking system to narrow down your exact GPS type of location, <laughs> and yes. uh, we'll we'll roll from there. So, and we'll get into Snow well, Valley find, here. If you find some corn, if you find some corn on that tracking device, you might <laughs> see my destination because all I see right now is cornfields. <laughs> uh, and that's all you're going to see is cornfields. Uh, that's from, right. From, from Waverly all the way to St. Louis, but Brent Tipton with the. Uh, the national team of Guam. But before we get to coach, uh, again, we want to thank our founding sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic, located at 14450 Eagle Run Drive here in Omaha, Nebraska. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with balance, neck, or spinal issues, have them go see Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi at COSAC Chiropractic. Give them a call at 402-964-0300 or look up their practice at COSACChiro.com. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. Uh, try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Uh, if you're listening, if you're, of course, on iTunes, so download, rate, and review the pod. Give us five stars so that we can continue to get the word out and gain momentum and help coaches hone their craft. And, of course, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, 
email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. And one additional thing to our opening rundown, a pen and a napkin.com. Look it up. It's a good website. I know because I built it myself and you should check it out and get signed up for a pen and a napkin university. But we're not going to talk about a pen and a napkin university right now. We are going to talk to Brent Tipton and we are going to talk a little Snow Valley. How was Snow Valley, coach? Snow, I, I've done several camps, whether it's in the States or in Europe. And Snow Valley, the the culture of what Snow Valley expects from their athletes and even from their coaching staff, uh, it's world class. We were up at 6.15 every morning in the gym doing player development stuff. And we go all the way through the last sessions at nine o'clock at night. And we had maybe an hour break for um, lunch, an hour break for dinner and an hour break for breakfast in between all that. And it was a lot of basketball, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of clapping and snow Valley was a great experience. My first time being able to be a part of that camp and fortunate enough this summer to be able to work all four sessions. So very thankful for the opportunity and, and snow Valley. If you know, if you're listening and you, and you're looking for a camp to send your players, snow Valley is definitely, um, the, one of the top, maybe the top camp in the United States. So it's, it's a great camp. It is. I I've had some friends work it before and, it's it's all fundamentals. Like you get one, you, they they play like one game a day. Otherwise, it's just breakdown and fundamental work. Is is what I've been told. Right, and and Coach Show talks about that every day. About one, we're only playing one game because that one game is valuable. Because from my understanding, a lot of U.S. kids are playing multiple games in these AAU tournaments. So the, the mean of those games don't hold much value or weight. Mm-hmm. And then he, he's always emphasizing that you're never going to graduate from a skill. And those skills being uh, the fundamental skills or the Fantastic Five. And mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk about that here, but that we never graduate from those skills no matter if we are a middle school player moving up to JV or even a college player moving up to the professional level. So we're never going to graduate from those skills. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it is awesome. Uh, it's, it's an Iowa and California thing. And like you said, there's, there's three more, uh, there's three more sessions. If you're interested in signing up or working them, I think the website is snowvalleycamps.com. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look that up real quick. Um, but it is, uh, excuse me, snowvalleybasketball.com. And so if if you're looking to, to, to run with the big dogs and really get after it, both as a coach and as a player, that's the place to be is in Northeastern Iowa for two or three days. So, uh, coach, we're going to, we're going to get going with you here. We're going to, we're going to talk about you a little bit. Uh, how, did you end up in Guam? Tell us a little bit of your story of how you became part of the national team at Guam and and and, and for for a stretch of time the the head coach at the University of Guam. Uh, how how did that happen for you? Well, that that's a great question, and, and that's the first question I get asked by every <laughs> coach in the United States. So I, I enjoy telling the story. It's not very long, but. In 2006, um, my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife, 
went to Guam to work at a Christian camp. There was there was doing like a church camp, mm-hmm. um, and it was about an eight week eight week or nine week camp that um, students from the United States from uh, from a college would go to Guam and then we work this camp. Um, and my wife just fell in love with the island, the people, the culture, the opportunities there, and came back to school over that summer. And we had talked that, you know, we knew we were going to get married in 2008, and we thought that it would be a great idea to start our family and our our marriage and our life together on the island of Guam. So uh, she graduated college in 2007. I graduated in 2008. Three weeks after we got married in 2000, summer of 2008, we moved to Guam. And we've been there for 13 years. We've set our roots there in Guam. We've had... Um, We've had parents die on Guam. We've had our son born on Guam. So it's really become part of, you know, it's all we know of in our adult life. Mm-hmm. And we're really thankful for the opportunities that Guam has given us and and the, the environment that it creates for our family. And we're just really thankful to be able to be a part of the culture there and the, and the, the friends that we have there. Um, and so... And the rest, you know, we don't know what the rest of the story is right now, but for right now, that's that's where we're at. It's about, uh, about what, 150,000 people-ish that live there? It's around 185,000. Okay. So we have, we have two military bases on Guam, and there might be a, about 165,000 like local people, and then you have the military that will make up the the, the, the rest of that that population number. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, how how did you carry over uh, your involvement uh, with your basketball on on the continent, so to speak, and mm-hmm. then you and then you go to to the islands and and you become part of FIBA of international basketball. Uh, how, how did how did your growth in the game develop once you guys got there? Well, the the growth as a coach is always um, attributed to somebody giving somebody else an opportunity. Yep. And I had been coaching on Guam at the high school level for three years, and our late president of Guam Basketball Federation, Tony Thompson, um, we had created this relationship where you know he was mentoring me. Um, there was an opportunity that came up in 2012 to coach the under-17 national team in a Micronesia basketball championships, which is it's like a championship mm-hmm. tournament with some of the smaller islands around Guam. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, we we went undefeated. We did very well. Um, then I had applied to get the under-18 job the, for the following year, which was the Oceania Championships. And then those Oceania Championships are the, the like. Australia, New Zealand, us, um, Tahiti, Fiji, New Caledonia. And so those are some of the, the bigger countries around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, those opportunities, I, I had gotten opportunities to coach within Guam Basketball Confederation and then and, and to not only coach youth teams from the under-15 level to the under-18 level, but be able to, to coach the women's senior national team um, in the East Asian Games. And then uh, currently, uh, for a brief amount of time, working with the men's senior national team. And so those have been really cool opportunities that 
you know, if, if I was anywhere else in the world, I, I don't think I would have been able to have. Mm-hmm. But b- because of the unique opportunities on Guam, I was able to have those. And I'm really thankful and grateful for the opportunity that somebody else gave me to be able to coach those those teams. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It, it's so important to uh, get that break, but it's, it's important that you create that break for yourself, that you, you know, you put in three or four years of hard work and dedication to the game and teaching the game the right way at the lower level uh, to when you're, when you got the opportunity, you were ready for it. Right. And this is a really common saying, but when preparation enables performance and not, not to say that I'm performing right now, but, if, if we don't put in that time to prepare as coaches and we don't, we're not studying and we're not trying to be current with uh, teaching methodologies and pedagogy, then we won't be prepared. And, and part of that preparation enabling performance is something that we tell players, but it's also something that we as coaches must adopt if we want to continue, continually be growing in our craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of growing, uh, you know, you you have a unique view of the game. Uh, you know, as as you know, Gene Hackman would say in Hoosiers, the the rims are ten feet off the ground, the free throw line's fifteen feet away, and all that other stuff. Uh, but right. there's a, there, there's a different uh, the the international game is is a different type of game uh, than we have traditionally played here uh, in the states. Uh, from your from your perspective and and you kind of I'm guessing you kind of study the game from the from the traditional from your background of growing up here in the states uh, but now you've got this whole different world that's kind of opened up to you in how the game is played uh, what are some things that we uh, in the United States should be looking at the international game and what can we do better what are some things that the the American game need some work on where we actually trail uh, places or the rest of the world in general. Uh, what are some stuff that we should be doing better? What What are some things that we can pick up on from the international game that we could be doing better here in the States? That's a, that's a great question. And it's stuff from the international game or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Great. I mean, I, I get I got to work with close to I think there's 370 kids at camp this week, and I don't get a lot of opportunity to work with American kids. Um, they have really great skill set that European players don't have, or even uh, players in Oceania and Asia don't have. So I think that there are different skill sets that each region of the world or each FIBA zone of the world. Um, they have that the other zones don't have. Mm -hmm. What the American players do have is an incredible uh, knack for athleticism and physicality. Mm -hmm. The the American player, in my opinion, and and this has just come also just from the experience of the week, they're very athletic and they're very physical, whereas more of an international player, they're highly skilled um, and they're more finesse. I do think that the the difference between the way an American coach or American program is going to 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 have a philosophy of their of their player development 
between or, or against an international coach comes down to the belief of what premium skills are. Mm-hmm. So an international coach, and from my experience, and I'm, I'm not going to speak from how I view it, is I view the premium skill as decision-making and how we can put a player in space and then help that player in space make the correct decisions. Whereas from my observations with American systems is the the style of play is very dribble dominant and mm-hmm. very um, one player focused to create advantages. Whereas we're going to use space and multiple players to create an advantage. And it goes back to that athleticism and physicality that an American player has. They can do that on, on some occasions on their own. Whereas a shorter or a less physical international player cannot do that. And so, that kind of is how difference in between how the American is played, the international game is played. Um, well, and, and I think that's a, a a great thing to think about as as high school coaches because most of us have to think of it. We we are trained to think of it from the American point of view, but very few of us have the kid that is talented enough that is able to dominate the the game in that kind of one-on-one and then make it create from there. And I think there's a lot of things that we as American coaches should be taking from the international game of three, four, five different options and ball movement and then make decisions based on that by working together as a, as a singular group. Is that is that something you would endorse, Coach? Right. So we... We, we coach very heavily players' first-touch decisions. So this, this first-touch decision is on the catch. A player has zero seconds to either shoot it, drive it, move it. And so we, we don't want that player to catch and then put that ball in triple threat, make a jab, and then make a, a dribble move and then a counter. First of all, we're in a 24-second shot clock. That's taking up time. The second thing is we're, we coach more the space before advantage and then advantage before shot concept than anything else in our offensive style of play. So in our space before advantage, we're trying to create either a numerical advantage, um, either a mismatch advantage or an advantage to where we're creating a long closeout. And we, we, we say that we're going to drive the OBD. So we're going to drive the off balance defender. And if we can create that long closeout, whether that's through a space advantage or whether that's a trigger where we're putting two on the ball, um, then that's how we're trying to score out of, as opposed to uh, letting that one player create off the bounce and draw help and then pass where help came from. We're trying to do that organically through our spacing and then through our first touch decisions. So when we're teaching our players about these advantages, we're teaching them not only how do I create a positional advantage for myself while I'm, you know, trying to get one on one with my player, but how can my advantage on my defender through my positional advantage create an advantage for a teammate? Mm-hmm. And then we're we're constantly trying to help players be self aware of how how they create an advantage will impact the next pass or the next two passes um, of a first touch decisions as we're playing in space 
So that's kind of how we're we're trying to develop a style of play with the players' decision making um, on the offensive end. Gotcha. Uh, you you deal mainly, like you said, you're you're dealing with oceanic kids and and kids that will the, the the odds are probably not in their favor from maybe even ever coming to the United States at some point. Uh, what is what is the perception? of basketball in the United States by these international kids. Uh, because I know if you ask some of our kids here in Nebraska or Iowa, uh, where I spend the vast majority of my time, uh, they, they probably are, are going to look at uh, international basketball players in, in a certain way. So, so how do these kids look at what they see on television, whether it's NCAA basketball or the NBA or those type of things? How, how, what's their perception of the way that the game is played here in the States? I think every kid, every international kid wants to play basketball in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the exposure through, whether it's the, the power five of, of the NCAA or even the professional level, that is attractive because of the exposure. But Every and we had a conversation with another coach uh, this week at Snow Valley about how every kid in in Europe, because that's where he was at, wants to get to the United States to play. Even our kids on Guam, it doesn't matter if it's a Division three school, yeah, they go uh, to the United States to play. Um, and I think it's also kind of has to do with the America. America is the really the only country that that couple is education and sport mm-hmm. and the rest of, of Europe and, and, um, and even in, in Australia club club teams is what drives player development in those countries. It's, they don't, they don't couple education and sport. Whereas, you know, in the United States, you're going to go to college and you're a student athlete. And that's, that's not common. Uh, from my understanding in, in Europe and then also in, in in Australia. So that's how kids view the American game. And, and they, it's attractive because they can get their education paid for. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's attractive to anybody who wants to not only play the sport, but to go on to further their education. Uh, and, and, and I didn't even think of that, uh, how different the American model is. Like you said, you know, the, the European uh, club system. And, and a lot of that comes, you know, started with soccer uh, but then it's kind of expanded into other sports, especially basketball, where it's these kids are going to academies at 10, 11, 12 years old, and, and that's that's all they're doing for literally hours every day. So, you know, right. the, the the Americans are kind of the outliers worldwide, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Right, and, and I, I don't have enough background knowledge to speak surely on this, so I, I could be wrong, but, um, yeah, the, the American model is definitely different, and... Um, not to say that the American model is wrong or the, the European model is, is wrong, because I know that could be a topic of debate. Sure. But I think that the American model is is different than the European model, where the European model is, is looking at um, the development from a very young age, from the under-12s all the way up through when they reach the professional ranks. And it's, it's all geared towards that skill development. Whereas in Europe, you're going to, you're going to be in in player development and team practices five days of the week. And then on that sixth day, you're going to play one game. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the United States, 
it's the complete opposite. You may have one day of practice and then four or five days of games, and it, it's just a completely different mindset, and it's a different a different uh, approach to what they believe is best for their youth players. Yeah. Well, I, I could tell you this, Brett. We'll uh, we'll check with our with our facts department here at a pen and a napkin, and we'll we'll see how accurate those statements were. And before we even air this, <laughs> perfect. We'll uh, yes. we'll okay. make sure. Um, you know okay. that 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 means me. I'll be checking that. So <laughs> sure, sure. And I and I and to, and to go back. I, that's I'm not speaking out of. I have these hard facts to prove that. Sure, I know. Um, but just just coming through conversations with other coaches and really beliefs are of how we would like to see development throughout the world and increasing participation of this in not only our countries but countries but also creating their a better and, and more knowledgeable player mm-hmm. overall absolutely absolutely a pen and napkin university is a series of courses designed to help any coach at any level to hone their craft in the off season, state starting the first week of July to help develop your coaching skills. The four courses are personal growth and development, building your X's and O's philosophy, building your program and fundamentals and drill work. Each course is seven weeks long with a new topic each week to dive into. The best thing about a pen and a napkin university is its flexibility. You can sign up for a weekly topic, an entire course, or the entire program. It's whatever fits your schedule and your budget. To register for one or all 28 topics, go to apennanapkin.com today. Our first topic, communicating with your players, begins Monday, July the 5th. Brett, here's a question I wanted to ask you about and uh, kind of pick your brain a little bit on this. You know, in the United States, we have uh, Popovich, Pat Riley, Phil Jackson, Gino Ariema, Pat Summit, yada yada yada, all the way down the line, and and we as American coaches don't leave our circle of coaches very often in the states to educate ourselves. In your experiences, who are some international coaches that American coaches should be looking at and studying how they teach the game, how they do things, how they run their programs uh, that will help make us to be better coaches here in the States? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, when I'm studying, I actually, I don't, I don't have Euro league on my synergy. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't get the luxury of watching very many um, European coaches or international coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been, I guess more influenced by uh, player development or high performance directors, um, mostly in Australia, okay. and learning how they teach the game. And then when I am watching other coaches, whether that's on Synergy or you know on on if it's a, a YouTube game, a game on YouTube, um, then it, it, that comes down to I'll study a topic before I'll study a coach. Okay. Um, but some of the coaches that I've I've really gleaned a lot from. Uh, there's two Australian coaches, Liam Flynn. Uh, he's now with the uh, Adelaide 36ers. And then Peter Lonergan uh, is the high-performance coaching director of Basketball Australia. So they've been two coaches that have been really influential in, in my understanding of the ta- te- technical and tactical side of the game. Mm-hmm. And then when I do go to study like game footage, and it's more so – on a certain topic. So if it's two-side transition, 
than it was the uh, last year's Houston Rockets or the Milwaukee Bucks also run it or the West Point uh, um, West Point uh, Army team they they also run that so I'll study if I study a team it's more not a not a um, not a coach but a concept mm-hmm. gotcha um, one of the things you talked about and and I and I read this article I thought it was really good. Uh, the sweet spot of athletic learning and just finding that proverbial sweet spot. Uh, you know, what What did you mean? I know what it is because I researched it, but uh, fill, fill our listeners in because I thought it was some really, really good stuff. Uh, talk about that and, and how coaches can help their players, especially our high school players, find that sweet spot of athletic learning. Wow, that's. I think I wrote that article a year ago. I'm gonna have to remember what I wrote about. Um, <laughs> oh, but the the sweet spot is an athletic learning, or yeah, an athlete learning is trying to find out how best that specific athlete is going to learn. And so, I I, I took a, one of my master's class classes was on um, just sport management. And one of the books I had to read was Coaching Better Every Season by Wade Gilbert. And in that book, he talks about three types of values. He talks about attainment value, intrinsic value, and instrumental value. So the attainment value refers to the athlete cognitively understanding that they are improving in their learning or skill acquisition based off the feedback that we are providing them during the practice process. And the intrinsic value is going to refer to the athlete cognitively linking the importance of the challenge to the execution of the skill. And then the last one is the instrumental value. So that one is um, what we can aid in enabling the athlete to reach their learning sweet spot. And so kind of going back to how we're designing practices to, to best put athletes in a position to be successful, not based upon necessarily what we are telling them, but showing them what to, the phrase is um, showing them uh, where to look, not what to see. Mm -hmm. And then when they can look, when they can find out where to look and we can teach them where to look, then that is going to shape what they see and then that helps them self-regulate and really take control of their own learning and and when a player can self-regulate and take control of their own learning and take ownership of that then when we have guided them uh and uh there's a phrase that that goes um if the drill can do the talking then i don't need to do the talking Mm-hmm. And if we can get our practice environment to where the drill is doing the talking and the athlete knows where to look, not necessarily what to see, um, whether that's a concept or, you know, wh- whatever it may be, then they have reached the sweet spot of athlete learning. How, uh, what, what's a particular story maybe that you've gone through in your coaching career as an example uh, where that has grown with one of your individual players or one of your teams to really put a, a uh, as my old Algebra 2 teacher used to call it, a uh, real-life example or a real-life application. Uh, how, how did that come about for you uh, as a coach? Well, um, that's a really great question, and I hope I can answer it and hope I can paint a picture. But okay. to, to give some background on that, 
Um, there's a there's a there's a quote that I, I absolutely love, and it's something that I, I remind myself as much as I can. And the phrase is, is as we are craft is to be mastered." Could you say that again, Coach? We had a little. We, you, you cut out a little bit on that one. What was the phrase again? Okay, so the phrase is: uh, as a coach, we are apprentices in a craft that is meant to be mastered. Okay, that we can. You know, whether we're trying to master the technical, tactical side of the game or the the social, emotional side of the game for our players, we're never going to master that because if we are lifelong learners, then the art of coaching is something that we're never going to master. We're, we're always trying to become. We've never we never arrived. We're always trying to become. And so kind of that's kind of some of background knowledge to that this whole process of trying to help athletes have that sweet spot in their learning. But something that, that I've evolved through is I'll just use a, an example of a drill design. When we're working on, let's say we're working on penetration reaction. When, when I first started coaching, we would put players in perfect spots, perfect spacing spots um, with perfect lines. And then we would throw the ball in and we would work on penetration reaction where let's say the player on the right 45 would dribble baseline the left 45 would drift to the corner. The, the player up top would relocate to the left 45. We'd make that hammer pass from the, the player driving down the right 45 to the left corner. The left corner would make that one more up to the left 45, and then we would shoot that shot from the left 45. Just a basic penetration reaction with the one more catch-and-shoot situation. Now, when we're trying to help players learn we have to add context to the drills that we are doing in practice. So that drill is maybe great for initial learning, but now we have to add context so that we can help players um, know where to look as opposed to what to see. So now we're teaching them where to look. And now in order to teach them where to look, we have to add defense. And so now we're going to give that offensive player at the right 45 um, an advantage to where now when they drive, they have two, two decisions. They're going to read the low man on help. If the low man on help rotates over uh, and shows their chest, then now that's a decision for the person who drives to kick it to the corner. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the player who receives it in the corner, if they have a closeout and they can't catch and shoot, now they have the decision to make the one more up to the 45. And so we're really trying to um, help players make their decisions, not based on what we tell them to do in a drill, like drive, drive baseline going right, throw it to the corner, make the one more from the corner up to the left 45. But we're trying to guide those decisions by where we place defenders, whether they're guided or scripted. And then from there, players can make that game decision based upon how that defender is playing them, which then is going to translate to uh, live play. So that's kind of the evolution from, you know, helping players with understanding where, where their sweet spot of learning is. And really that's the trying to do that through our practice design. Gotcha. A couple other things here, and, and I'm, I went deep into your vault, okay? So I'm, I'm warning you right now, Brent. Uh, I'm, I'm keeping you on your toes here today. So. Sure, you really are, actually. That's great. <laughs> um, just teaching and, and teaching the game. 
a couple of things that I really liked uh, when you were talking about teaching players. Uh, emotional agility and normalizing error. Um, I, I think one of the biggest jobs that we have as coaches is ma- helping our players master their emotions while keeping our own, own emotions in check. And I know, as, especially as a younger coach, I was really not as good at it as I should have been. And and then normalizing error, that basketball is a very imperfect uh, imperfect game. Uh, you know, in, in your experiences, why, why are these two things so important to, to coaching and teaching and, and, and teaching the aspects of the game? Well, uh, I think we're all familiar with the, 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 the term emotional intelligence. Yep. And that's basically understanding that my behavior as a coach is somehow going to impact my, my player. The emotional agility is just knowing um, what I guess what my triggers are as a coach of what's going to trigger me, what's going to trigger me um, emotionally, and then knowing how I can um, – behave as a coach to best be respectful to my player. And so a phrase that I, I heard from uh, a coach in um, Italy was, we are coaching we are, when we are not coaching. Mistakes, especially when we keep the phrase in mind, we are coaching when we are not coaching. A lot of times, and, I, and I've been guilty of this, and it's something that I have to, to be aware of, is that when a player makes a mistake, we're going to react as a coach through our body language, let's just say we, we, we give this animated response of frustration, sure. but we don't say anything so that we can show everybody in the gym that, that you did not teach that player to make that mistake, or I am not responsible for that player making that mistake. And so I always want to keep that phrase in mind when I'm coaching that when I am not coaching, I am coaching. And, and that way I keep my body language in check and I, I keep my responses to whatever the athletes are doing, whether it's a mistake or not, I keep that in check. Mm-hmm. How about the, the normalizing error? Sure. So normalizing error um, comes with – normalizing error is not that we are accepting of athletes' mistakes – but that we are aware that athletes are humans and that there is a role of forgetting when athletes are trying to learn or perform a skill. And so athlete, uh, in order for an athlete to learn, they have to make mistakes. And so we want mistakes of action as, as opposed to mistakes of inaction. So a mistake of action would be maybe my defender on the ball He's doing everything he can to keep chest-to-chest positioning, um, close enough to touch positioning, and not allow um, the guy he's guarding to clip his hip and get on a driving line. He's doing everything he can to keep the ball in front, but he picks up a foul. That's a mistake of action. As long as that, that player knows the right technique and we know that he's giving multiple efforts to control the ball one-on-one, we're okay with that. And, and those type of things become coaches' claps for us. So where we're going we're gonna to profusely praise an athlete for give, either giving that multiple effort despite a mistake or um, them being unsuccessful uh, with whatever they're trying to accomplish. Um, mistake of inaction would be that same defender does not give multiple efforts to stay in front of the ball one-on-one 
but still picks up a blocking foul. Mm. And so those are things that, you know, we're, we need to address those mistakes of inaction. Um, but we, we want those players to make mistakes because mistakes are part of their learning. The role of, of, norm, um, of normalizing error um, is, are we talking about normalizing error or athlete forgetting? Sorry, I no, got sidetracked. Normalizing error. Normalizing error. Okay. Normalizing error. When he's making a mistake, then we're not going to judge a player for that mistake. And mm-hmm. we're going to have a either a teaching solution to help them through that mistake, um, or uh, we're going to – we use the phrase that correction is not criticism. And so yeah. we, I've stolen that phrase from someone else, but we've, re, we've revamped that phrase to our players and told them that coaching is not criticism. And so when they do make that error, that when we do come around and coach them, that they know the heart behind why we're coaching them. And they know that our tone, maybe it's intense at the, in the moment, but they know that our tone, uh, they know the heart behind our tone. Um, understanding that players are going to make mistakes and we need to normalize those errors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think that that's, that's exactly what that has to be, that, if the effort's there, if you're concentrating, if you're trying to put yourself in that good situation, that's the stuff that you really praise because players are going to make, I, I forget, I, I, I read a thing, uh, players make somewhere between 30 and 50 mistakes a game uh, if, you, if you play any significant minutes, you know, so... I, I think that it's that you you emphasize the the effort, especially with younger kids as they're learning how to play, rather than coming down and criticizing them if they are putting in that effort and that concentration level, and they're trying to do everything that they can do for you. Don't you think, Coach? Right. Yes, I agree with that a hundred percent. All right, uh, Brett. Let's jump to our Don Meyer quote of the day here. Uh, the goat, Don Meyer. Uh, here's the quote of the day, and uh, and maybe you've heard this one, Coach. Maybe you haven't. Uh, but if you want to comment it uh, on it, be uh, feel free. Don Meyer quote of the day is: Always be a quarter friend. If a guy was down to his last quarter, would he call you? Always have time for people. And I think you know. Again, when Coach Meyer said this, that's when you, you use pay phones and stuff like that, not cell phones or mm-hmm. stuff, uh, you know, to, to get a hold of people. But uh, the, the most important thing on there, always have time for people. And I think that's, you know, one of the best things about the coaching community is people making time for one another. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, a great quote. And... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, yeah, it is a great quote. And, and I remember, you know, seeing that on one of the early Don Meyer tapes that I, that I saw and, and, uh, yeah, always, always stuck with me. So, um, let's jump into some, some basketball skill work. You're, you're, you're great with, with, with skills and and developing players. Uh, one of the things that you do, you call it the fantastic five, uh, kind of go through, uh, your philosophy of the fantastic five, the skills that you guys are working on consistently and things that you want to do to combine, uh, or what are things that you do to combine these fantastic five into uh, one skill with multiple skill or one drill with multiple skills being uh, worked in there? So I'm just going to let you cook, Coach. And and if I if I feel the need to jump in, I'll I'll, I'll throw an extra question in here. But but the floor is yours. Well, uh, perfect. The, the fantastic five is as a uh, I stole that from Peter Lonergan, and the fantastic five is 
dribble, shooting, pivoting, passing, and guard your man. And so the premium skill on the offensive end for me is decision-making. So how can I uh, implement the fantastic five of dribbling, passing, shooting, uh, pivoting, and guard your man into whatever concept we're doing and then making sure that we don't do those fantastic five uh, on air and blocked format. And Mm so one of the ways that we try to implement this fantastic five in a games-based approach to coaching, let's just say we're working on uh, uh, the setting up of a pick and roll uh, with our creator or with our point guard. A lot of times and I've been guilty of this when I first started teaching pick and roll uh, setup is immediately on a catch. Um, players are going to set that, set that screen up with a live dribble, mm-hmm. which isn't always, always going to happen. So a phrase that we say is we say footwork before dribble. So one of the constraints that we'll put on our, our creators or on our guards as they're setting up their pick and roll, um, let's just say that it is, uh, one-on-one against a chair where the defender, the, the, the offensive player can um, use the chair to set up their, their screen, but the defensive player cannot touch the chair. So we're working on the offensive player setting up their defender, but going back to our fantastic five, we want to work on our pivoting. Pivoting is a, especially on our, our non-dominant foot, pivoting is an under-taught skill, especially in the setup of the pick and roll. Mm-hmm. So we say footwork before dribble, and the constraint is the offensive player on that first catch before they get into a live dribble to set up the pick and roll is they have to pivot twice. And so whether that's a jab or a cross-step jab, they have to use footwork before they put the ball on the floor to use the dribble. Now when they when they get into that pivot or the, the or those two pivots, now, because they shifted their defender and they changed the angle of the defender's feet, that makes it easier for them to slice off the pick and roll or to use the pick and roll, which is the chair in the initial learning of this, is that chair, and now they can get on their driving line to score. And so the whole reason why we don't want that offensive player to touch that chair is to, because it is a, uh, it's a, um, the chair is a prop that is a non defender or, or a, non, a non-screener, it's just a, an object on the floor, we want to give as much context to what that on-ball defender is actually going to be doing against a live screen. And then obviously we're going to progress that to where we're sending in a, a live a live screen from a player with a, um, a defender that's going to be defending that screener. And so that's just an example of how we're trying to use a games-based approach to teaching the fantastic five as opposed to rolling the ball out to an elbow and then doing a front pivot and then doing a reverse pivot and then uh, either making a layup or making a pass to the next person in line. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have a, a, a plan that, that you kind of start every season with that, okay, we've got our fantastic five, but we're going to prioritize. We're always going to prioritize this first and and this second, and 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 you've got that linkage work together. Are you referring to um, the Fantastic Five in isolation, or more of like an offensive concept? What, what, however, whatever direction you want to take it in, Coach. Okay. 
we this is new for me so in the last year just through my master getting my master's i've been introduced to more of a non-linear approach to practice design Mm -hmm. so a non-linear a linear approach would be a b c d so a would be one on o b would be maybe one on one to two on o maybe to two on two and then C would be three on three, four on four, then D would be five on five. Mm-hmm. That would be an example of linear. Now, now I've been experimenting with just through through evidence based research, through practice design, of trying to approach through a nonlinear approach. And so that might look like we will get into a concept four on four and teach the whole. And then we come back to point A and point B, which is the part method, Mm -hmm. and then really dive deep into those details and then come back to the whole four on four and five on five. The whole purpose behind that would be a lot of times, and this is difficult with players who don't have much background knowledge, but if we we have a team or a group of players that has a lot of background knowledge, we don't need to start at point A. They already know how to... We just use a ball screen, for example. They already know how to set up a ball screen. Uh, the screeners already know what type of screen to set based upon whether it's aggressive or conservative coverage. And so you put that group into a a, a mid-pick and roll with, let's just say, aggressive coverage, mm-hmm. and then you let them play um, to add context to what you're going to teach at the point of the screen against that aggressive coverage. Now, if it's aggressive coverage, now we're teaching a, a, a certain screen, like a touch-and-go screen, and we, we teach that when we, we go back to point A, um, the two-on-two piece. And that we dive in, into the detail of how to set that touch-and-go screen, how to exit the screen, how the creator is going to um, either try to split that aggressive coverage or to how to advance the pass one pass away uh, to, to, to kill that coverage. And then we go back to four on four and five on five and put what we did in our breakdown of apartment so that the context they have, the detail and the skill, and then now they can execute that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're trying to introduce concepts the best way possible. Now, um, this week, I, I got to work with some eighth graders, and they didn't have any background knowledge on the topic that we were we were talking about. And so, with that group, we had to use a linear approach to where we are teaching that one on o to to give um, a small amount of success rate with them. Let's say just a finishing drill with working through their footwork and then making the layup. But then we have to add context to why are they going to use certain footwork on a finish Well, it has everything to do with how that defender is guarding them one-on-one. And so there's still times where we got to teach linearly, but we're trying to, to be more nonlinear in our, in our teaching method, in our practice design. Yeah. And I, and I think that kind of like what you referred to, it, it's a team by team situation. You may go linear with one group and then a year or two later you can go, uh, you're able to go non-linear, but maybe you have to go back to the linear way of teaching. You just have to figure out what's best for that group. Right, that's correct. Yeah, okay. Uh, so let's talk a little pick and roll. And the, the, the Amer- you know, obviously it's the, it's the most basic play uh, in the history of the game. And, 
you know, for a while the 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 game went away from it, and now we're kind of back to it uh, in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, you do some great stuff with with teaching pick and roll, uh, especially on the offensive side of it. So, what? Uh, why, why? Let's let's start with why have you uh, been so uh, passionate about teaching uh, ball screen type of offense and decision making, and, and then kind of go into how you you teach it and and what are the keys uh, to to teaching pick and roll and perhaps some of the the breakdown stuff that you do to to help our coaches. Uh, and again, I, I wish you were on Zoom, but. Uh, or or something like that, but uh, what are what are some ways that that you can you know help our coaches teach ball screen offense uh, in in a real positive way to help their players understand it? Sure, that I hope I can help with that. Um, when 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 I was first teaching pick and roll, when I first started coaching. Obviously, there there's that growth process of knowing how to to teach the decision-making, the pick and roll. But um, I always felt that when I first started coaching and teaching it, I, I could never find the correct solution to beat the, the coverage at the defensive coverage at the point of the screen. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of um, prompted me to study the concept. And the whole reason goes back to what Ross McMain says. We never want to be prisoner of the defensive coverage. So if, if a team is in a hard hedge and I don't know how to tactically um, move the ball to defeat that hard hedge mm-hmm. and kill the coverage, then I become prisoner of the coverage. So the teaching of pick-and-roll coverage or the teaching of reading the pick-and-roll and the decision of the pick-and-roll is always coverage-dependent. And so at the point of the screen – if that coverage is going to be aggressive, let's just say that it is a hard hedge. That hard hedge is going to determine my spacing on the front side of the ball screen and the back side of the ball screen. So the front side is when the when the creator comes off the point of the screen, that's the space, the other third of the court that's in front of the, the creator's vision. The back side would be as the creator comes off the point of the screen, what is behind him. And so teaching that space before advantage advantage before shot concept within the pick and roll is, is important before we get into teaching of the pick and roll, but under teaching the creator, what type of dribble to use to kill that coverage and then how to use the pass to kill the coverage is vital to defeat an aggressive coverage. Mm. The, the obviously the flip opposite of that is if it's a, a conservative coverage. So if it's conservative coverage, knowing that once the creator comes off the point of the screen, um, his job is to get into his pocket decisions. And those three pocket decisions are, can I score, can the roller score, or can the weak side score? And so that's kind of when we're teaching pick and roll solutions or teaching um, how to attack a a certain uh, defensive coverage at the pick and roll, that's what we have in mind. I think one of the most undertaught things in uh, pick and roll uh, offense is teaching the screener how to see the coverage and teaching the screener how to separate from the coverage. Yeah, absolutely. And so, in, when we're when we're teaching against um, aggressive coverage, uh, I always thought that you just send your screener in and, and set the screen and then roll. But anytime it's aggressive coverage, we want to set a touch and go screen. So. 
if the uh, the screener's defender is in a hard hedge or in a blitz, a blitz, then we want to get into the screen, touch the floor quickly, and then we want to we want a hard roll. Mm-hmm. If it's a conservative coverage, let's say it's a drop coverage, then because that screener's defender is maybe in a deep drop or two steps down from the screen, then we want to we want to set a hit and hold screen. So that screener is going to uh, hit the on-ball defender and hold that screen maybe a half second or second longer to enable the creator to get one-on-one with the big um, and then create the that two-on-one advantage as the, the, the screener exits the screen and have that two-on-one advantage with the screener, the creator, and then the screener's defender. So those, those are some things that have been really eye-opening for our players that we don't have to have a play or a set Mm-hmm. to go against certain defensive coverages if we teach uh, solutions at the point of the screen based upon what the defensive coverage is then our players can conceptually kill a defensive coverage no matter what it is and and it just helps our players be able to better read uh, defenses and defensive coverage at the point of the screen gotcha what are some things that you do uh, maybe some drill uh, a drill or two that you run? Uh, to really work on ball screen offense uh, that that helps your kids with making those type of decisions. So we, without offensive advantage, offense can't make a decision. And so we don't start our pick and roll two on two or three on three because a lot of times players don't know how to create advantage themselves. Now, although there there's that trigger of a on ball screen. Yes, that trigger can create an advantage, but a lot of times players know that that, 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 that ball string can create advantage, but they don't know how to, to get to that advantage. And so we, we start out, when we are teaching these concepts, we give full offensive advantage and we usually start things two on one. Mm-hmm. So if we're teaching a, a ball screen, then we're going to teach that with an, uh, a, a creator with a ball, and then an on-ball defender, and then we're going to send in a uh, second offensive player to set a ball screen. And the first the first step in that teaching is teaching the creator, teaching the ball handler how to set up that screen, whether that's footwork before dribble or whether that's a, a pound and hip swivel to get into the to get to the level of the screen to come off that screen. Um, but they have to have that context of having a defender on them. So they know how to set up that defender as opposed to going two on O on air. And then that creator going through the, the motion of setting up a defender, um, but not actually reading the defender at the point of the screen to create the advantage. And so that's how we get into a lot of our concepts, whether that's a get or whether that's a DHO, we're doing that two on one to help, add context to why are they using footwork before dribble to set up the screen so that when they get to the point of the screen, um, they've used that footwork to set up advantage at the point of the screen. And so from there, we're going to load that two on one now to two on two plus one. And so when we're teaching the offensive concept, I always want there to not only, um, offense create an advantage whether that's through a ball screen but what happens if two on two they can't leverage that advantage Mm -hmm. and so 
there's always three options in the pick and roll. One, can I score? So when the, the creator comes off that pick and roll, let's just say that the, the pick and roll is at the, in the right slot. Uh, the screener has just come from the left dunker spot, and we're coming to set that ball screen on, on the right slot. So the creator is coming off that, that screen going left, and the first option is, can I score? So whether that is, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up. So whether I'm going to pull up for a jump shot or I'm going to get all the way to the rim to score either at the, in the paint or at the rim, that's my first pocket decision. The second pocket decision is, and we're two on two here from the, from the right slot. That second pocket decision is, can the roller score? So if I don't create advantage for myself coming off that ball screen, I'm next looking to see if, if, my slicing angle is creating an advantage for the roller. Now, because we are two on two and I don't get those two reads, can I score? Can the roller score? In order, instead of just throwing up a shot because we're two on two, we have to give a pass decision to the point guard or to the creator. So that's why now we're moving from a two on one to a, a three on two, a two on two plus one. Mm-hmm to give the creator a decision or a pass decision because, you know, again, we don't want them throwing up that shot. So I usually put that, um, that third offensive player to start behind the screen. So if the screen is being set on the right slot and we're coming, we're slicing off that angle going left, then that extra offensive player will be in the right corner. And then from there, if we haven't created advantage off that pick and roll, whether it's aggressive coverage or conservative coverage, then now I can throw back to the right corner. And now that right corner has a shot decision. And then we treat that as um, either a shot decision or now that those two defenders, one of them has to close out on that corner. And now we're into a dry decision with penetration reaction. So from there, we're going to load it again to four on three and then to five on four. And then, back to five on five. Mm-hmm. So that's how we, we are loading a concept um, conceptually trying to teach uh, or give offense that advantage. Because again, without offense advantage, there can't be a, a, a true decision. Um, so that way we're, we're giving game context for our players so that they can understand um, the decisions or the reasons why they're making their decisions with, within this pick and roll offense. Mm-hmm. So, on the on the other side of the ball, you're looking at it from the offensive perspective. Uh, you know, obviously the angle is going to be different every time, and the location of the ball is is not going to be the same every time. But but as you're as you're if you're somebody listening to this, going, okay, how the heck am I going to guard this? What are uh, what is the type of coverage that seems to uh, give you the most, uh, it, it's the most difficult type of coverage for your players to read. Uh, if, if you say, yeah, we, when teams do this, man, uh, we, we really feel like we, we, we tear this up. Uh, but then on the flip side of this, when we see this pretty consistently, this is the one that my kids have a hard time kind of figuring out. That's a great question. At the youth level, it's aggressive coverage. Mm-hmm. So, the, the most chaotic coverage is probably a blitz. Mm-hmm. And then the second, the second aggressive coverage, or the least chaotic, is a hard hedge. Mm-hmm. The reason being is when a youth player is coming off of a pick and roll, um, if we, we're not teaching them the concept of their vision and that their eyes sell lies, 
more times than not, because of the pressure of the hard hedge, that creator has their head down, and then they're looking at, they're more worried about not getting that ball stolen. So mm-hmm. we struggle with aggressive coverage. We, we struggle with that hard hedge or that blitz because of the inexperience of our youth players the easier one for our youth players is that drop coverage mm-hmm. or the conservative coverage. Just because when they come off the point of the screen, there isn't that immediate pressure of, of, of aggressive coverage. Now, on the on the men's side, um, I feel that aggressive coverage is a little bit um, easier to defend in in some regards because guards are so good coming off that screen and getting on their slicing angle and then getting one-on-one with our big and a drop. Whereas when we're in aggressive coverage, then we're forcing a pass out of the pick and roll. Mm-hmm. And if that pass isn't, if that pass isn't deliberate, deliberate one pass away on an advanced pass or a throw ahead, and then the throw ahead hitting the short roll, then we have just created a defensive advantage if offense can't figure that out. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, the higher level you go, I, I think it, you know, it can vary, but at the youth level, um, for us, the hardest defensive coverage for us to find solutions for is aggressive coverage. Mm-hmm. Coach, you're not to St. Louis yet, are you? Um, I have exactly one hour left. <laughs> okay. All right. So yes. we won't take an hour, but let's let's talk a few minutes on your two-sided transition. I know that's a, sure. a, another thing that you're really passionate about and that you teach really, really well. Like you said, uh, Houston, Milwaukee, I, I think the University of Iowa women ran this a couple of years ago when they had Kara Gustafson running the, the, the rim running spot. Uh, so go into your, your two-sided transition philosophy, uh, why, again, you're, you're, you're very passionate about it and, and why you think it's, it's the best way to get that ball out and going and, and kind of some of the, uh, the basics of your two-sided transition. Sure. I believe that decision-making is the premium skill on offense. And the more space we can give players, especially at the youth level, to make those decisions, then we will have a, a higher success rate on the offensive end. And I believe that two-side transition is the best spacing template to put players in, in this position to make basketball decisions and and to self-regulate those basketball decisions and really just play out of space and concepts. So the first thing in teaching a two-side transition is going back to their first-touch decisions. So those first touch decisions are to shoot it, drive it, move it. Mm-hmm. So when we're in two side transition, obviously the two side is the first thing that we're forming. We're trying to, to get players to find the nearest sideline. The first players down the court are going to sprint and hug to corner spacing. And then that last player on the two side, um, we tell him to delay to fill that 45. So we want as much space in between the two players on the two side. So a lot of times that two side is a player in the left corner and a player on the, on the left 45. So our left 45 spot is the top of the key or top of the three point line extended. So we want to play with as much space as possible between the left corner and that left 45, because in transition, if we have that numerical advantage, a lot of times there's one defender caught guarding those two players on the two side. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Now, our transition priority within the two side is we want to go early and opposite of our outlet with a hit ahead, preferably by air. And so when we hit ahead early and opposite of our outlet, let's say the ball is outlet on the right sideline and we are going to skip it ahead to the left sideline in transition, we're moving transition defense twice. And if you think about how you teach transition defense, the first priority in transition defense is you're going to stop the ball. The second priority is the farthest player from the rim is going to protect the rim. And then the third priority is we want to plug the ball side hit ahead. And then from there, everybody else is loading up the middle third. Mm-hmm. When we go early and opposite to the two side, that player who is farthest away from the ball protecting the rim usually is that player who's caught in a closeout when we when we skip ahead early and opposite of the outlet he's the only player in that closeout caught guarding two and then from there we we have a numerical advantage a two-on-one advantage on the two side Mm -hmm. and then from there we can make the one more from the 45 to the corner or we're going to shoot that shot from the 45 um but that's the biggest reason why we like the two-side transition is um we, we have an opportunity for players to make those basketball decisions with their first touch, and then we're playing in space. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the biggest thing that we teach out of the two side is whether or not players have a big advantage on the catch or a small advantage. So let's say we, we the, the point guard's on the right sideline. He's going to go early and opposite to the left two side at the left 45. On his catch of that, of that skip pass, if his if that closeout arrives on the catch close enough to touch, he has a small advantage. And so anytime where we have a small advantage, then we want our players to either drive it, a, 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 drive that closeout, or to move it one more to the corner. Mm-hmm. If that defender on the closeout to the left 45, after we skipped it from the point guard, going early and opposite, if that defender is farther than arm's length distance on the catch, then we have defined that as a big advantage. And so we want to shoot that shot on the early and opposite pass um, every time that that player feels that he has a big advantage. Mm -hmm. The reason why we want to shoot this shot in transition is because we believe that earlier shots in transition hold greater value. So if you look up the statistics in the NBA, a large, I would say probably 85% of the, all of the teams in the NBA, um, the first six seconds of their shot clock, they're shooting above 50%. Yep. But when you get to the bottom six seconds of the shot clock, they're showing, they're shooting 35% or lower. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to use that data, even at our level, to create these big advantage shots through our two side transition. Because we also play with the 24-second shot clock. And we want to hold weight to those earlier shots in transition holding greater value. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, taking that analytics and that helps uh, your kids understand why you're doing what you're doing. And, and, and kids are smart enough these days, you, when you put those numbers in front of them, they're like, oh, I get it. You know, and, you're, and I'm, I'm guessing, Coach, that helps sell these type of concepts. Right. And, and because players feel and they know that they have that we have the confidence in them to take that shot if it's a big advantage. Mm-hmm. And so we, we give them the acronym ROB shot, the R-O-B, ROB shot. R stands for range. So the shots in range. O stands for it's um, open. 
and then B stands for balance. So you're catching on balance. Anytime a player has a rob shot, we want them to take that shot. But if they don't have a rob shot, then most likely it's a small advantage. Then we want them to resort to their first touch decision to either drive it or move it. And this really helps the flow of offense if if we constrain our players in practice to play in zero seconds on the catch so they have zero seconds to make a decision then offense is going to move the ball is going to move instead of stick because we're we're helping players with their first touch decisions and also players know that because they move it on a one more because we do have this philosophy that the ball doesn't stick and that we're playing in zero seconds that more than likely that ball is going to come back to me and so it creates that trust between teammates and they know that we have this common goal to create a, uh, to collectively create this big advantage shot. And that's through our spacing. And then obviously we try to get to those big advantage shots. If we don't have advantage in transition, we try to do that through our triggers. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. I'm telling you right now, I'm teaching or I'm stealing first touch decisions uh, that, that will be used just North of Omaha, Nebraska this year nice. so um, nice and I, I stole that from is either ross mcmaines or uh francisco nani I, I can't it's one of those two that i had been i had talked to and it's from them that's not original with me so i, I had stolen it as well and if you if you steal something you give credit once and then after that it's yours so <laughs> no problem on that all right so now it is yours because i stole it from you so Nice. We're, we're, okay. we're, we're good Fair at taking enough. care of. So, Brent Tipton, uh, great stuff today, Coach. Uh, any social media, websites? I know you, you've got a lot of stuff online here. Any of that stuff you want to plug here on the pod? Sure. My my Twitter handle is Coach B Tipton, and my G, or my Gmail account, my email is uh, the same, Coach B Tipton at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrific, terrific information today, Coach. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you know, right now, Space Jam should be about wrapping up. Jordan should be defeating the aliens here. And, and I, <laughs> I, I think we've timed this out pretty good. So uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed being on the podcast today. Thank you. Yes. And I really, I, I, never, I, I never see myself as, as somebody who can, I guess, sharing is an honor, but it's also very humbling. And I really just appreciate you reaching out and, 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 enabling me to have this opportunity and what's cool about what you're doing is is you're helping other coaches get better and even when i listen to your podcast of previous episodes it helps my thinking process and it helps me get better and again going back to that that phrase that we are as coaches apprentices and a craft that's never meant to be mastered but you're helping us as coaches help us master our craft and so thank you for what you're doing to help us grow and thank you for the opportunity to share. Well, uh, I appreciate it. I, I am, I am humbled. Uh, but I'm, I'm just the, the center pivot here and, and you guys are the ones that are bringing in all the information. And, uh, but I, but I do, I do greatly appreciate it, Brent. So, uh, why don't you hold the line here a second? I got to wrap up a couple of things and, and then we'll, we'll head out for the day. Uh, Brent Tempton, uh, the junior national coach of, of the Guam national team. Uh, great guest today. It really enjoyed the conversation that we had. Of course, we want to thank our founding sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic. Uh, if you're ever in need of chiropractic services here in, here in Omaha, 
Uh, don't hesitate to call Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi at 402-964-0300. A pen and a napkin university. Go to a pen and a napkin.com. We're starting this Monday. Uh, again, probably the, the most important subject I think you can have uh, when you're a coach of any sport, communication with your players. And that's what we're going to start with this Monday. Follow us on Twitter, a pen and a napkin. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me, a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. My name is Marty Plum. It has been a privilege and an honor to have Brett Tipton uh, from Guam. And again, a reminder, it wasn't part of the United States until the Spanish-American War of 1898. So keep that in mind, folks. Coaches, as always, let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.